0: Our text this morning will be verses 19 through 32. Just to remind you, Paul was preaching to Festus and also King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. And um, we had the substance of what he was preaching. And this week uh, we will have... The responses that Paul and and uh, through Paul, God, was looking for, as well as the responses that Festus and Agrippa and Bernice uh, gave to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Almighty God, I pray that you would not only be here to give us wisdom and insight into your Word, but help us also to respond to it according to Your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, let me read verse 9, beginning with verse 19, Acts chapter 26. Therefore, O King Agrippa... I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying, both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, He would proclaim light to both our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Have you, well, I say have you, I know that you know people and typically loved ones, who have been faced with a critical decision, and when faced with that decision, are intent on making the wrong decision. And you wish that you could change their minds. And you talk with them. You plead with them. You pray for them. And those are all good things. Or sometimes... You might scream at them or trying to control them because you know of the consequences of their decisions are going to be so destructive. Well, those are bad things. I would not recommend that you do those things. Um, but you just you you are so eager to try and change their minds because you know what will result as a result of them making a poor decision. And finally, you just have to sit back, watch them make that decision, and then you help them to survive the consequences that they bring upon themselves. The reason I mention this is Paul's audience was faced with a critical decision. The decision would be, would they believe the gospel? Would they turn to God and live? Or would they reject God and live and then die with the consequences. Last week we saw that Paul laid out um, all the desire all the dire consequences that all mankind must live um, live with and live under without the Lord Jesus Christ. So in verse eighteen he laid out, you'll remember, that all who are without Christ are spiritually blind. They are also living in moral darkness. They are living under Satan's power and influence. They are guilty. And they live unholy lives. And those are the dire consequences of living without Jesus Christ. But in the very same breath, the Apostle Paul uh, offered the hope of the Gospel. He said that Jesus came to deliver people from every one of those dire consequences. He came to take those who were living in spiritual darkness and by the free gift of His grace to enlighten them, to open their eyes, those who were living in moral darkness, he said, the scripture said that he came to bring them into light. Those who were living under Satan's power and influence, Jesus came to turn them to God. Those who were living guilty lives, those who were suffering uh, and being burdened under their guilt, he came to bring them forgiveness of sins. Those who, came, who were living unholy lives, he came to give them a place among those who are being sanctified, or those who are being made holy in Jesus. All these things, people cannot do for themselves. They cannot escape these dire consequences. Only Jesus can give them that way of escape. And there is nothing that anyone could do to help Him to to, uh, deliver us from these consequences. It is Jesus who saves us. We don't save ourselves. We cannot help Him. But we must respond to the gospel. And the question that Paul puts before his hearers this morning becomes our question. The question that is implied here in verses 19-21 through is, will you respond to the gospel? And for those of you who are believers here this morning, don't tune out because this message is also for you. The man who discipled me uh, when I was still in college used to always say that the the same steps that a non-Christian takes in coming to God are the same steps that we as believers take when we return to God. Those same steps are faith and repentance. Every time we as, as a believer sin against God, we've got to commit ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ and then and turn from our sins. And so uh, let's look at this response that Paul is seeking. In verses nineteen and twenty. He says, Oh therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly division, but I to the heavenly vision, but I declared first to those in Damascus, then in then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, and here's the response that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So he mentions repentance in verse 20. He mentions faith in verse 20 because when he's talking about turning to God, he's talking about turning to God in faith. And repentance and faith are simply two sides of the same coin. To turn to God, by definition, means you must turn away from your sin. Or to repent, according to the biblical definition, means that you are turning to God. It is distressing to me that evangelicals try and rip these two, um, these two parts of our salvation away from each other and say that repentance is not necessary, only faith. That is to distort the gospel. These two things are always put together. They are put together here in our text. Repentance and faith go together. They are used interchangeably. So, for instance, sometimes you'll have the the apostles in their preaching telling their their hearers simply to believe because the repentance is so embedded in their message. Or sometimes they'll simply tell their hearers to repent because the the need for faith is so embedded in their message. But many times they use both both of these concepts as they are outlined here in our text this morning. Faith and repentance. In other words, in order to turn to God in faith and take hold of Him by faith means that you must let go of your sin. Uh, To trust in Christ means that you see your sins not as harmless weaknesses, but rather as abominations in God's sight. Turning to Christ to love Him will by definition mean that you hate your sin. You will despise it, and if you have truly turned to God in faith, it will mean that you will turn from it. So then the question becomes for us this morning, Do you despise your sin? Does it break your heart that you could so easily sin against God? If you are a stranger to what I'm saying here, if sin has never broken your heart, if sin does not break your heart when you sin against God, then you need to ask yourself, Am I a stranger to faith? Am I a, am I a stranger to God or do I have a relationship with Him? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in Him as your Lord and Savior, you will, by definition, turn from your sin and despise it. In fact, one of the questions I get most often from believers is, am I really a Christian? Because what happens is their hearts so despise their sin, and yet they continue to sin, and it breaks their hearts so much, and they say, can, I, can God really love a person like me? Their Their conscience is so tender, because they hate sin so much, that they doubt whether they're a Christian. And of course, I always say that, It's your hatred of your sin that shows the true uh, reality of your faith. And so faith and repentance always, always, always go together. And then Paul adds also in verse 20 that uh, you will do deeds in keeping with repentance. Perform deeds in keeping with repentance. I want to spend a little time here um, because in working through this passage this week, uh, this phrase distressed me. Not because I don't believe it, but because I was I was wondering how you would receive it. When I work through a passage um, in preparing to preach, the first time I work through the passage, I want to know what is the Bible saying. Second time I work through the passage, I want to know um, what questions will the congregation have when I'm uh, to this passage. What 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 will be the things that the congregation struggles with? And then thirdly, I want to I work through the passage. I want to know how to apply the passage to our lives and circumstances. But this second pass this week kept causing me to stumble. I couldn't figure out exactly why. What was going on, uh, I just I, di- I didn't really know. And I think I finally figured it out. And what was happening is I was thinking in the back of my mind, and it took me a while to get it to the front of my mind, but this deeds in keeping with, re- with repentance, this performing deeds in keeping with repentance that Paul mentions... I think is very easily misunderstood. Because I think um, many will, will ask themselves, well, am I doing anything that proves that I am doing some deeds in keeping with repentance? In other words, uh, you might be tempted to ask yourself, am I going to church? Yes. Am I, um, am I praying? Yeah, I pray in my life. Uh, do I do good things for others? You know, things like this. Those are deeds in keeping with repentance. And so I must have a true faith. But that's not the way the Bible wants us to approach this idea of performing deeds in keeping with repentance. I don't think that's exactly how Paul means it. He's not asking you about isolated incidents, in other words. I think what he is saying when he is talking about performing deeds in keeping with repentance, he is—he wants you to ask: Does your life as a whole exhibit a lifestyle that is in keeping with repentance? Is that—is that clear? Let me illustrate it this way uh, from another passage of Scripture, going back to Second Kings chapter three. And you don't need to turn there because I'm going to try and be as brief as I can. But here's what happened in 2 Kings chapter 3. God had promised the Israelites a complete and utter victory over the Moabites. But in promising them this victory, He made demands on the Israelites. He said, if you're going to win the victory, here's the way I want you to win the victory. And so in 2 Kings 3, 18 and 19, here are the instructions or the demands that God made on the Israelites. It says, God will hand... This is the prophet speaking. I think it's Elisha speaking. God will hand uh, Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city and every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. And so, indeed, God gave the Israelites complete victory over the Moabites. They routed them. And they went then into the land of Moab, And they did exactly what God told them to do. They cut down every good tree. They stopped up all the springs. They ruined every good field by throwing stones all over them. And they also overthrew every fortified city and every major town in keeping with what God had said until they came to the last city, the city of Kir-Heresheth. And in Kir-Heresheth, That was where the king had made his last stand. He was trapped there in the city. And so the Israelites surrounded it. The king of Moab tried to break out of the city, but he could not. Israel had laid siege, and the destruction of kir um, was was certain. And the king of Moab, in his desperation... He took his oldest son, and he took his son up to the highest part of the walls of the city so that everyone in the city and also the Israelites outside the city could see what he was going to do. And he offered his son as a burned sacrifice, as a burned offering on the walls of the city. And when that happened... The Moabites that were living in the city rallied to their king, and their defense became stout. And Israel decided it was not worth it, and they left. Israel was 99% obedient to God. They stopped up every spring. They cut down every good tree. They threw rocks on every good field. So that they could not be used. I don't know how you ruin a a a field with with rocks, but apparently they were able to do it. And in that one last city they were disobedient. Here's what I the point that I'm driving at. If you simply look and measure your life according to certain events in your life or certain things, certain certain deeds that you have performed. That might be inadequate. The Israelites were 99% obedient, but in that 1%, they were disobedient. And it showed that their hearts were not really trusting in God. The question is, does your lifestyle and your lifestyle starts with your desires. Is it your desire to obey God in everything? Or are certain issues of obedience optional? That's what I think Paul is saying. And I believe the Lord Jesus backs it up. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus um, turned to the large crowds were traveling with Jesus He, and turning to them he said if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother his wife and children, his brothers and sisters yes, even his own life he cannot be my disciple and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple in the same way any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple I would love to say that simply joining the church, simply doing a few good things for God is enough. But it's not. In order to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is a wholehearted proposition. It means committing yourself to Him wholeheartedly and completely. So I want to very quickly, just in two or three minutes, look at the the various responses that are typically given when people are called to trust in Jesus wholeheartedly. We have, first of all, here in our text, the the response of opposition. uh, Verses 21 through 23. Uh, So, for instance, um, Paul said, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. For this reason. For what reason? For the gospel, the re- because of the gospel, it wasn't Paul's personality. It wasn't personal mistakes that he had made that he had that made him so offensive to the Jews. It was the gospel. Why is the gospel so, um, so opposed then by the Jews that they want to kill Paul? Well, the gospel threatened their power and authority as Jewish leaders, and that's true today. The gospel calls people to a higher loyalty than anything else this world has to offer. And that rubs people the wrong way sometimes. And also, um, the gospel, I think, just rubs people the wrong way because they think, well, the gospel is only about a negative emphasis on sin or uh, an emphasis on living a puritanical Lifestyle, In other words, to be a Christian is to be a killjoy, and it just rubs people the wrong way. And so what ends up happening is the modern church, unfortunately, tries to alter the gospel so that it is palatable by taking out the very reasons that it causes opposition. I don't accept the premise that Christianity is only about uh, a negative emphasis on sin. Uh, Nor do I accept the premise that the Christianity demands that we live a puritanical lifestyle as people seem to mean by puritanical lifestyle. I believe that we should keep the the demands of the gospel as the Bible outlines them. We cannot move from that because in so keeping those demands, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is magnified. So that is the response of opposition from the Jews. Then there's the response of incomprehension. Uh, This is Festus. Festus in verse 24. As Paul was preaching, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind and your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus here gives a very typical response. Uh, he's basically saying, Paul, you're getting too worked up about this. You're getting too st- serious about this Jesus stuff. You've become unbalanced in your thinking. You're out of your mind. People like the fact that Christians talk about heaven and that you Christians talk about facing death with happiness, with uh, comfort. But you start talking about repentance about performing good works, about a wholehearted commitment to God, and they think that is foolish. They think you have crossed the line and you have become out of your mind. And that's what Festus here is thinking. And so uh, he tries to to tell Paul he's out of his mind. Paul responds, verse 25, I am not out of my mind, O most excellent Festus, but I am speaking uh, what is true, and I am speaking rational words. And then he begins addressing uh, King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. And so he says, "...for the king knows about these things," verse 26, and that is uh, his address to Agrippa. So he, he shifts his attention to, Agrippa, to King Agrippa, and he leads King Agrippa on. He says in verse 27, "...do you believe the prophets?" And then he gives him this leading question, or this leading statement, I know you believe the prophets. So he's kind of set a trap for Agrippa. Agrippa wants to weasel out. Verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, In such a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And then Paul drives the issue home. Verse 29, one of the great passage, great verses of Scripture, Paul said, "...whether long or short, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains." Agrippa, he says, believe the Gospel. Agrippa, repent of your sins. Agrippa, come to Jesus wholeheartedly. What's Agrippa going to do? He is faced with this critical decision. How is he going to respond? Verse 30, Then the king arose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. They simply avoid the issue. The issue is before us this morning. The issue is before you this morning. What are you going to do with this issue? With faith, with repentance, with wholehearted trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you going to avoid the issue? Are you going to put the issue behind you some way or another? For you as a believer struggling with some sin, are you going to let that sin continue to be a problem in your life? Are you going to make peace with God by wholeheartedly trusting in Jesus Christ? The issue is before you. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank You that You have given us a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is also our Lord, our King, our Boss. And I pray that You would help every person here under the sound of my voice, or as Paul said, everyone who hears me this day would become as I am, a believer in Jesus Christ. God, I pray for the devotion of Your people. Help us to renew our faith in the Lord Jesus. It is so easy to take our eyes off of Him. And as I was speaking to the young people earlier, to keep our eyes fixed on the things of this world, follow its culture, and um, in so doing, dishonor and displease You. We thank You for Jesus. And so we pray in His name. Amen.